and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guests today, or guests today, uh, are Kevin Cassini, Adjunct Professor of Law at Quinnipiac University School of Law, and his entertainment law class at Quinnipiac. This is the first time we've had a class full of students on the program, and I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, welcome, Kevin and class. Thanks, Professor Fry. Thanks for having us. Uh, my my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. So, so Kevin, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you on the podcast is that you know I've been following you on on Twitter for a long time. You've always got really funny and interesting comments and commentary on various issues from I think a really interestingly informed uh, practitioner's perspective, um, which you know as many law professors I practiced for only a very brief period, and so it's it's really interesting for me to see how people with you know a foot in in both worlds see some of these questions differently than those of us who you know went. Straight into the academy. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background, um, how you got interested in entertainment law, and how you came to be teaching at Quinnipiac. Oh, sure. Um, I'll take it in reverse order. I began teaching here because I graduated from this law school and had taken the entertainment law class when I was here. Um, I came to law school with an idea of doing entertainment and copyright law because my undergrad degree is from the Berkeley College of Music. And I was a practicing musician for a while before I tried my hand at a number of things that led me to taking the LSATs, which ended up with me applying to law schools and then ending up picking Quinnipiac as my law school. So um, it's kind of circuitous route that got me to sitting in this class. But there is another professor here, a full-time professor, that wanted to keep the entertainment law class going when the person who was teaching it was going to move back to New York City. And he initially pledged that he would teach the class and asked me if I would help um, pitch in when we got to the music portions and the copyright portions. Uh, and then a couple of weeks before class, he decided that, no, I would just do the whole thing. So that's how I ended up with, uh, I think we have 12 students in class um, and myself. Um, really doing a combination of brief review of copyright law um, just for a basis to get up to speed and combining that with current events in copyright, trademark, publicity, things like that, things that we see in the news just to keep it fresh. Cool. Cool. So um, do you find that your practice experience, I'm assuming that you practice at least, you know, like entertainment law among other things, I imagine, um, do you, how do you, how do you find that that informs your approach to teaching, teaching the class, the material you offer, sort of how you contextualize materials for your students? Yeah, our school is from a practicum standpoint. Um, so we're trying to produce students that can go to work as soon as they get barred. Um, so I'm always trying to bring in practical, um, materials and practical stories um, to tie in with the the rules that we're pulling out, I asked them when we got started, do you guys and gals want to do appellate review and uh, case law? And invariably they said no. So it's good. So we go through or I go through either recent headlines or you know, some of the same um, threads that you follow uh, on Twitter and just pull out something that's of note or of interest and tie that back to 
something that we've talked about recently or something that's in the case book that we're going to get to. Uh, as a basis, I use a case book, um, but I go through and photocopy things out of that, um, bring some other law review articles and things like that to the table. So it's a mix of current events, some of my materials, um, appellate law that's been edited for case books, and some legal scholarship and academic writings. Cool. Maybe you could give uh, an example or two of particular, you know, kind of hot topics from the news or particular projects you brought into the class. Sort of what kind of materials did you give the students? Um, how did you contextualize it for them? And sort of how did the learning process go when, when you and your students were working through those materials? So one of the things we spent a lot of time on is what is an entertainment lawyer? And I tell them all, um, entertainment law doesn't really mean anything because it just means too many different things. So we talk about the different hats that everybody wears inevitably. And we spent a good bit of time talking about the difference between management, agency, and being the attorney. And so to that end, we find stories in the casebook and cases about people uh, running afoul of the law, either in California or in New York. And then we can turn that into current stories. One of the uh, students who will talk about it later today um, tracked somebody whose company is a management company, but he was actually doing more um, talent buying than anything else. And so um, we're learning that to be an entertainment lawyer means wearing a bunch of different hats at different times. Um, so one of the things that we looked at was how do you contract yourself out and how do you define your terms as to what you are and what you aren't, what you will and what you won't do, um, both to meet expectations, but also not to run afoul of any of the ethical obligations that we have. Very cool. Very cool. So you, you mentioned that before you went to law school, you went to Berkeley College of Music and that you were a musician. Um, I wonder, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, what, what instrument or instruments did you play? And have you found that your background in the arts has informed your practice as a lawyer and, and legal educator? Uh, yeah, it has. Um, I was a saxophone principal. Um, at my school, Berkeley, if you're good enough to graduate, then you're not really all that good. Um, the people that are really talented don't end up graduating. They end up getting plucked for tour or recording or something like that. So I was good enough to graduate. Um, but I'm proud to say it took me six years. Um, it informs my practice in that uh, I'm more readily able to view what the artist is looking at or try to put myself in their shoes. One of the things that we talked about at the beginning of our class was that you have to try to meet the artist at her level and understand that, that her gift and, and her product is not just um, something that can be tagged and sold, but for her, it's something that she put a lot of her time and a lot of herself into. So if you meet them there with that understanding, you've got a lot better chance of making a connection and getting done uh, the job that she's looking for you to get done, which, you know, it's obviously good for business, but, it's also a lot more rewarding when you can get them where they want to be. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking in class, not only about what the rights are that you're protecting, but who the people that you're protecting them for um, and what it is that they're looking for and trying to make sure that everybody understands up front what it is that you're trying to do and what you can do and what you can't do in some respects. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, th that's really interesting and it's very much in line with my own limited 
experience working with artists primarily on a pro bono basis. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit kind of in a practical level, how you go about making those kinds of connections with artists. I mean, there are strategies or techniques or things that are important to keep in mind when when lawyers are speaking to artists to sort of try to get on their on their wavelength and make that connection with them? Yeah, I think you know this. We can get stuck talking in our own vernacular to one another. And then it gets difficult when you step out of that um, to, to make sure that you're not speaking the same way you would like in the well of a courtroom or, or, or even to a, a classroom of students. Um, so understanding the, the language and the, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the thesaurus that they use um, when they mean something uh, is helpful. And the lingo, so to speak, changes from generation to generation. So if you can do that, then that's helpful because you can understand what they're talking about. But as far as making the connections go, um, I think most artists are really genuine people and they just want to know that they're working with someone that genuinely has their best interest at heart, or at least can put into play what it is they want to get done. So it's up to them to articulate what they want. Uh, and if we can receive that on our end, I think the rest of it falls into place. They, they have good BS meters, at least in the long run. I've seen some people when they first get started, get screwed over pretty bad, but they end up with a pretty thick skin and pretty finely tuned BS meters. So as long as you're genuine with them and let them know what you do and what you don't, uh, and you set reasonable expectations, I think it ends up paying dividends going forward with those connections. Great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, why don't we hear from some of your students? I understand that they've all prepared projects and that some of them are interested in sharing their projects with listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, one of our students um, was actually, uh, his name's Lou Martoglio. You can, you can just introduce yeah. himself. Hi, how are you today? Nice, nice so to meet you too. Lou was at a concert in Rhode Island recently. Um, watching it from soup to nuts, so to speak. And he had a pretty good experience, I think. Good. Nice to meet you, Lou. Yeah, so uh, I went to a concert at the University of Rhode Island in Kingston, Rhode Island. Um, it was one of my friends that works in the industry. He, like uh, Professor, Case, Pref Professor Cassini said, um, is a talent buyer, and he also manages some local artists. So he can, uh, kind of combines those roles, um, and he gave me the opportunity to sit back and shadow one of his concerts. Um, it was overall a great experience to kind of see the true front lines of the industry. Cool. Well, maybe you could say a little bit like what was the concert and, you know, what kinds of things did you see and, and what did you learn? Yeah. So the concert it was a rap concert. Um, it was a guy by the name of Rich the Kid. Um, and I got there around 830 and kind of stayed through the entire concert. So I got to see the load in process. I got to see meetings throughout the day with security, um, police, medical personnel. Um, I got to see things like sound checks, um, being in the green room, seeing the mood and atmosphere of green rooms, kind of dealing with riders and just kind of like the full experience, just really immerse myself. That's cool. Were, were there things that you found surprising or unexpected? Um, the thing I would say I found most um, surprising is that it never really goes to plan. Um, People show up at different times, past their, what time they're supposed to be there. And, you know, you just have to be fluid like the law um, and kind of stay on your feet and just roll with the punches. Very cool. Did the person who you were shadowing have any 
particular aspects of the job that they emphasize for you as being particularly important or things to be aware of? Yeah, I think the biggest thing he said is just be flexible. Um, things aren't always going to go to plan, especially in, under- in, especially in the entertainment industry. Um, so he said, be flexible, be yourself, and uh, just do something you enjoy. Very cool. So do you, pa- do you plan to practice entertainment law when you graduate? Um, I don't know yet. I'm still deciding. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I think I scared him off. Very cool. Very cool. Are there other students who'd like to share their projects as well? Yeah. Who wants to? Some of them wrote about, you know, implications of the MMA. Uh, Some of them filed their own copyrights, um, registrations. Uh, Here's Miss Womack. Excellent. Excellent. Why don't you you tell me a little bit about your project? Uh, Yeah, so my project was basically just looking at the MMA and what the implications are for musicians, and I am not at all an expert in the area of music law and or uh, the situations that are arising from the MMA. Okay, Caroline, so for for listeners who aren't familiar with copyright law, why don't you tell them a little bit about what the MMA is, uh, like what's the actual title of the act and what was it intended to do? Uh, So it's the Music Modernization Act. Uh, and basically what it's intended to do is I mean, modernize music law, but essentially is take what is existing in music law right now. So, uh, I mean, the DMCA did a little bit, but before that there was the Digital Music Recording Act, and that did some stuff in 1995. So this is really the next amendment and bump up to uh, Title 17. Of, you know, that's the federal copyright law. Uh, and this is kind of just a way to modernize that aspect of it. So particularly it focuses on um, digital music and online streaming services. And it creates this whole new committee that addresses a lot of the issues that songwriters are facing and composers and producers and et cetera, people in the industry. I feel like I'm still not an expert on it, but I did learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can say that a lot of copyright professors are still puzzling through what the MMA does and doesn't do, but maybe you could say a little something about, you know, what the motivation for the act was. So what were musicians and songwriters, what were they concerned about in relation to streaming that kind of prompted uh, Congress to try to address this issue? I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. Um, But from what I got from the research I did is basically understood that there was a lot of non-payment going on regarding royalties because of, you know, people didn't know who owned what and who was owed what, um, that there was a, a lot of, you know, complexity as far as licensing the uh, performance rights as far as digital music go. Uh, and so the MMA really, I think that the biggest thing that it addresses is the streamlining of the licensing process for digital music if it ends up working which i'm going to know for uh, a few years at least so uh there's a lot that needs to be done because of the implementation of it but if it does work out that would be cool i think for uh, but we'll have to see i mean i think it needs to work out <laughs> yeah the devil's in the details as always, right? But but so you, you said something about streamlining. How would you characterize the primary efforts of the MMA to streamline the licensing and payment process? Well, what did Congress do? They have, I mean, 
they haven't done much yet. Uh, I, they did like they enacted the law, but uh, as far as I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand your question a little. Right. Well, it's my understanding that the MMA like set up some, or at least authorized the creation of some new organizations to help facilitate these kinds of transactions. Yeah. So there's a bunch of uh, nonprofit entities that were established, uh, alleged. Like, I mean, they're going to be established, and they are established. It's still in the works. Um, but as far as that is, I mean, it really depends on who's going to be on those committees, which the act lays out. You know. The, who needs to be on it. So there's five songwriters and one person representing, you know, the, the sorry, I'm blanking right now. Uh, one person that represents different parts of the group, one person that represents uh, producers, things like that. So while it is nonprofit and everything like that, and there's other entities that are going to figure out the royalty situation. Uh, I think there's a lot of things, again, like it's hard to say what they actually did is because a lot of stuff hasn't actually been done yet. So it's, hard to say what the effect is even going to be. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of these bills end up getting worked out post hoc, as it were, right? When people figure out what the market actually needs. Yeah, Brian, I actually saw that uh, in the last couple of days, a competitor um, came on the scene to try to say that they're going to be the ones to administer, or they at least want to throw their hat in the ring to make a competition. So I was impression that the publishing association um and mpa and that uh, and sound exchange were going to be the ones to do it because they're the ones who kind of put together the mma um and i guess we all kind of assumed that would be the case but in the last couple of days some uh some of their competitors uh have put together a different group that proposes to do that same thing but in a different way and they say at a at a lower cost so um, it may get dragged out longer before anything gets actually implemented. I have a couple that filed for copyrights that I think had. Oh, do you want to explain your process? Um, part of the practicum that I do is try to leave them with something that they can actually take with them. So they filed copyrights. So if they have no other uh, marketable skills when they leave law school, they can hold themselves out as a copyright attorney in that they can file those copyrights. Um, and one of my students here is actually an artist in her own right also, and she ended up registering one of her own works. Yeah, so I uh, played lawyer and client uh, for this final project, and I filed an application for a copyright registration for my painting. Um, and I was actually surprised at how user-friendly the um, copyright office's website was, and the application was pretty seamless. Um, as a law student, it was pretty easy to fill out the application. It took me like a half hour tops. Um, I think if I didn't have any knowledge of copyright law, maybe it would take me like an hour, hour and a half, because I'd probably be Googling random terms. Um, but the website was pretty good at giving a, like, you know, definitions, um, giving examples of, um, you know, certain terms, what's a work of visual art, what's a, you know, graphic work, pictorial. Um, yeah, it was a pretty positive experience. Great. Can, can you introduce yourself really quick and, and tell us a little bit about your artwork? Sure. Uh, my name is Taylor Giancarlo. Um, my artwork was a painting 
painting. I want to say it's like 24 inches by 24 inches. Uh, acrylic on canvas. Um, it's inspired by the song Gray Street by Dave Matthews Band. Um, so it's just like kind of based off that song. It's uh, depicts a girl kind of sitting on the corner of Gray Street and the end of the world. Um, very moody scene. Uh, and it's just something that was really meaningful to me. It was one of the, my favorite paintings that I did, and I did it for someone else. So I figured, you know, it's out of my hands, and I'd like to um, uh, register a copyright for that one. Cool. So <clears throat> two questions for you. Um, number one, did you have any concerns about the registrability of your painting? And two, um, what was your what, how would you characterize your motivation for both creating the painting in the first place and choosing to register that particular painting for for copyright or with the copyright office were, were there particular aspects of copyright protection or uh, uh, or rights granted under the copyright act that were especially salient or important to you um yeah so to answer your first question, I think the only concern I had was, you know, because it's based on a very, very popular song, um, is that going to bar any, you know, copyrightability? Um, and, you know, just based on my basic copyright knowledge, I don't think it would be. Um, you know, I didn't include, like, you know, the entire song in it, like any lyrics. Um, and to answer your second question, I think because it was a painting that I no longer had in my possession, I was, um, it was in the possession of someone else. So I, um, you know, I didn't know if that person might be, you know, displaying it in their home, um, you know, sharing photos of that with their friends, like, look at this new painting I got, um, I wanted to have an official um, stamp of the government on that, in a sense. Um, you, know, you never know down the line um, how that might be helpful, like the extra um, protections that a registered copyright would have. So that was my motivation behind that. Does Do, do, do you feel like the ability or the fact that you registered the painting with the copyright office does does it feel like it gives it some sort of like um, validation from the government of your ownership or of the value of your work at all? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like as an artist, it gives me a little bit more credibility. It's like that feeling when I like sell my first painting for like twenty five bucks. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'm a real artist now. Um, so now to have, uh, well hopefully have, um, a registered copyright on that. Um, hopefully I'll be able to register some more as well. <laughs> so the copyright office is still reviewing your application. Oh yeah, yes. Brian. So all of their stuff was due today. Um, and Taylor told us earlier that the typical turnaround time is six to nine months. Uh, could be up to 15. So I won't be hanging their grades on whether or not they get registration. Um, but I hope that they all will. And I think they all will. 
Yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like it. Um, well, so maybe in the last five minutes or so of the podcast, we could have some of your students reflect on their experiences in the class, sort of what they what they learned, what they especially liked about the class and your approach to it, and, you know, sort of uh, thoughts about sort of their experience as law students. Sure, it's all you. You guys need me to leave. <laughs> and 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 I hope all the students will introduce themselves before they talk. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in a quick word. Um, my name is Justin Ahern, and I'm from Shelton, Connecticut, and I'm at, at Quinnipiac Law School as well. Um, and I'm a second year law student, so uh, this is my third semester here. My first year of law school were all the required. Um, courses uh, that every law student has to take. So this was my first elective course that I was really excited to take. Um, I had not done any IP related coursework um, at all. So I was really lucky that Professor Cassini did um, an overview, overview of copyright law, uh, trademarks and that kind of stuff for the first few classes. Um, I had no prior knowledge of any of that. So that was really useful uh, for me to have. And now in the last class, kind of seeing other students um, have their trademarks registered or they're awaiting registration um, to see some of the talent in the class and, and what everybody has to go through to get that trademark and, and really how easy it is to get it um, was really, really cool to see for me. Very cool. It, has the class been different from your other classes in any way? Yeah, definitely. So as Professor Cassini already mentioned, um, he gave us the choice to kind of shy away from um, the case law for this class. And I think that was a really good, um, a good thing. Um, there's a lot of current events, a lot of news, a lot of stuff that goes on um, that I wish more classes would kind of touch upon. Um, you know, you could just turn on CNN at any point and, and, and learn a whole bunch of stuff that can fit into any um, course in law school. Um, but most classes kind of just uh, focus on the old case law from hundreds of years ago. Um, so it was really, really cool to focus on current events, things going on in the news, in the entertainment industry. Um, and I think it, it, it was more enjoyable that way, for sure. Right. So the class, the, the class presentation made the law more tangible to you in some ways? Yeah. And the material that we were going over was current. Um, you know, the, the overall theories that we were learning and the overall um, topics that we were be, uh, discussing in class are obviously important now and then, um, but it's cool to see them practically apply to things that are going on in the news right now. Excellent. Other students with, with thoughts about the class and their experience of it? Sure. Here comes our resident guitar player. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, Professor Fry, Michael Pulaski here from uh, Stratford, Connecticut, 2L here at uh, Quinnipiac School of Law. Excellent. Hi, Michael. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was going to obviously jump on uh, what Justin, my colleague here, was talking about with uh, current events, because one of the things that I, um, I really wish that it was done more in my other classes, and I, I, and I know outside the first or during the first year, that's it's kind of hard, but. I think going into class and spending the first five to 10 minutes talking about current events and how that relates to the, the legal topics that you're discussing and you're trying to understand is huge 
for for making that jump from making the jump from uh, big conceptual topics like torts and contracts, um, criminal law, and, and big legal theories to the to how it applies to everyday people in their everyday lives. And that's one of the things that we did here in the uh, Professor Cassini's entertainment law class that I really, um, I really appreciated. And that uh, when I talked to other professors about um, other classes and uh, how, you know, and when I talked to other students about how the best parts of uh, going to law school and, and the best parts of class, uh, going into class and talking about current events and how that relates to to the uh, the legalese that you're discussing that day is uh, is is great. Yeah. So you feel like that really makes the the, the subject matter more tangible and improves your learning experience. One one of the things that I think makes a a law student a really really successful law student is being able to take these legal ideas and and conceptual things that aren't necessarily tangible and and relating it to their everyday experience and the things that have happened in their own lives or in the, uh, the lives that of people that they know. Mm. Mm. So I understand that you may have written a song. I was wondering if you could share it with us. Ha- absolutely. Over, over the, po- over the podcast. Wow. That's a, uh, that's a big ask. Oh God. Oh, professor Fry. Um, <laughs> He's got his pick out. He's ready. Oh, God. How about, uh, jeez. One sec. Let me uh, take the old guitar out. While Mike's getting set up, I do want to mention one other thing that uh, Professor Cassini did that uh, kind of set his class aside from the rest is he kind of connected with us on an individual basis, um, allowed us to kind of communicate through modern day social media which teachers very rarely do but um it ended up being a really good way to learn um about what's going on about what he's learning about um it was a great way to connect share uh and also kind of talk to each other so i think that was something else that was really really well done in this class yeah i couldn't agree more i have many of my students are facebook friends or twitter uh conversance. And I, I've found that it's a really fantastic way to engage with them about ideas. So that Kevin and me both. <laughs> All right, well, let's hear it. All right. This one's called Colorado. Last night, the doctor
said we're going to Colorado. It's when he found the cure. Let's go pack up the I'm gonna be there when you need me. I'll be the shoulder you can cry on. I'll guide you through the dark days. Be the one you've always run to. I'll pick you up and fall down. I'll be the best dad in the world you'll see. I'll give you everything you need. I'll support you as you chase your dreams. awesome man i appreciate it of course my pleasure thank you so much for sharing your song and i assume that it uh is telling a true story uh that was it's not a it's not a true story but but it comes from the heart just the same okay interesting very cool it's a lovely song and uh and i really appreciate all of you spending the time to talk with me tonight thanks so much thank you all right so i'll talk to you soon 
Und aus Elam hoppen, 